I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, I'll begin reading for us in verse 16. And uh, then we'll read through to chapter 5, verse 10. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'll begin in verse 16. If you're using one of the black Bibles underneath the chair in front of you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 966. 966. We're continuing our series uh, entitled Living Like Jesus is Risen. Okay, and so uh, we're walking through 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, and I'll pick up this morning in chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would rather be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank You and praise You for your word and for another opportunity to gather now around your word. And Father, I thank you for all the hope that is contained in this passage. And I pray, Father, that you would now, as we come to your word, that this hope would break through the lies that we, dis- we believe, the despondency maybe that we are feeling even this morning, and that we would be filled with the hope of the gospel. I pray, Father, that in so doing, we would be empowered for mission in ways that we've never been empowered before, that you would do a great work in this time we have together now. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 4 and 5, he is defending, he's describing and defending his ministry as an apostle. And Paul acknowledges in these chapters that following Christ on mission can be difficult. We especially see this in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now let me just say this morning that I praise God for the opportunity I have to serve as the pastor here at Berea. I've been here for 13 years and thankful for every year the Lord has given me uh, and very grateful for the opportunity to serve here. But as pastors in America, across America, are surveyed regarding their well-being and their experience in ministry, the results are not encouraging. The New York Times reported on August 1st, 2010, 
that, quote, members of the clergy now suffer from obesity, hypertension, and depression at rates higher than most Americans. In the last decade, their use of antidepressants has risen while their life expectancy has fallen. Many would change jobs if they could, end of quote. A similar um, article, or, or actually a work that was written, a book on, a, on this similar topic, was entitled Pastors at Risk, that was written by H.B. London. And he did a lot of research across the country, surveying different pastors, and uh, there's, a, there's a lot of interesting information in the book. But he came to the conclusion that 1,500 pastors leave their ministries each month due to burnout, conflict, or moral failure. That's 18,000 pastors a year. Now, I just want to say that I don't, I don't want to in any way communicate the idea that it's always wrong for someone who's in full-time Christian ministry to move out of that into another profession. I wouldn't want to make that claim at all. But these, are, these numbers, given how high they are, and then the reasons for them, burnout, conflict, moral failure, these are the reasons why so many pastors are leaving the ministry. We can say surely that these are alarming and concerning numbers. But this is, doesn't just apply to pastors, right? Think about missionaries. We prayed for the Snyders this morning, young missionary couple who's serving in Madagascar, and we've partnered with them to reach the Antandrui people. And we think about the life and the work of missionaries, their ministry and the challenges of ministry are even compounded by the fact that they are distant from family and friends. They're dealing with a different culture. They're often daily concerned with the possibility of opposition or persecution. If we were to even put pastors and missionaries to the side for a moment, perhaps even more to home for many of us, you can think about the challenge it is to remain faithful, to remain um, faithful to your convictions, to remain faithful to your faith, to remain faithful to the mission of Christ in a hostile working place. Some of you, as you think about being on mission for Christ, perhaps it's your marriage that comes to mind. You know, your marriage is a gospel mission. Your marriage is a platform that God has ordained to be a representation to the world of the gospel, of the relationship between Christ and His church. And some of you might say, you know, my marriage just for some time has been hard. It's been difficult. And I'm weary. Perhaps it's parenting. Parenting is a gospel mission, right? You say, I love my kids and, and I want to be there for my kids. I want to serve my kids. But you know, I'm so exhausted trying to honor God in, the, in my parenting. Perhaps you're tempted just to throw in the towel and do whatever seems to work in the moment. We can think about all types of opportunities, possibilities that we have to live on mission for Christ. And one of the things we see in the Scripture that's so very clear is that oftentimes... In fact, we could say most of the time, living on mission for Christ is difficult. It's challenging. Christ, uh, the Apostle Paul was given a monumental mission. Christ gave Paul the mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles, take the gospel to the nations. And Paul's perseverance and faithfulness in that mission was remarkable. You know, it's here in chapters 4 and 5 that the Apostle Paul, and we saw this last week, if you were here last Sunday, he's talking about all the hardships and the difficulties and the afflictions that he endures because he is on mission for the sake of Christ. 
And it's in that context that he says in chapter 4, verse 16, we do not lose heart. How did he do it? How did the Apostle Paul not lose heart? How did he remain faithful? How did he persevere even when the mission of Christ called him to great suffering? Well, he tells us in our passage this morning. And in telling us, the Apostle Paul doesn't just provide us with platitudes, right? The Apostle Paul doesn't say, well, there's a silver lining in every cloud. Well, all things have purpose. Well, God helps those who help themselves. Or good things come to those who wait. No, that's not what the Apostle Paul says. Rather, we see that the foundation from which Paul is doing ministry rests deeply in a Christian worldview. And in particular, rests deeply in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And from that, he finds his hope. This is really what I want us to see this morning in our text. It's the main point of our passage. That while on mission, Paul does not lose heart because Jesus' resurrection ensures him a new nature, a new body, and a forever home. I'll repeat that. When on mission, Paul does not lose heart because Jesus' resurrection ensures Paul a new nature, a new body, and a forever home. The gospel, and in particular, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, transformed the way Paul viewed himself. It transformed the way he understood his soul. It transformed the way he understood his body. It transformed the way he understood his present. It transformed the way he understood his future. And God would have the gospel to do the same thing for each one of us. And if it does, if it transforms your whole worldview and the way that you see everything, then you will be freshly and deeply empowered and steeled for mission. These are the three points I want us to look at this morning. What These three things that the resurrection ensures for the Apostle Paul, a new nature, a new body, and a forever home. Look there in chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, and we see a new nature. Paul says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal." Now there is some debate here over what Paul is actually referring to when he speaks of our outer nature and our inner nature. Some believe that Paul is making a distinction here between our soul and our body. Others believe Paul is making a distinction between his life in this present world as opposed to his life in the world to come. But either way, the idea is that as Christians, there is a part of us that is wasting away. There is a part of us that is, that, is, that is going away and a part of us that is being remade even on a daily basis. Now, I've shared with uh, many of y'all before that I'm actually going to be turning 40 in June. And because of that, I'm having to slowly come to grips more and more with this reality that my outer nature is wasting away. Uh, I went to the eye doctor this past week 
And uh, when he checked my eyes, I didn't tell him I was having trouble reading, but he asked me. He said, well, are you having trouble reading? I said, no, I'm nearsighted, so I have a hard time seeing at a distance. And he said, oh, well, just wait, it's coming. Because uh, everybody, and I didn't realize this, everybody, when you hit between the ages of 40 and 45, your ability to read up close begins to decline. He says, when it happens, because it's going to happen, just get you some magnifying glasses and you'll be okay. That wasn't very encouraging, given the fact that my profession requires a lot of reading. But as Christians, we recognize our, our outer nature is wasting away. But that is not the only thing that is true about us, right? Paul says our outer nature is wasting away, but because of the resurrection life of Jesus Christ that is present within us, he also says our inner nature is being renewed day by day. In other words, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead dwells within us. And by that resurrection power, he is changing us. He is transforming us to become more and more like Christ. He is changing us and transforming us into all that he created us to be. And what he is making is beautiful. It's glorious. You see there, Paul goes on to tell us in these verses how God is doing it. And notice it is God who's doing it. In verse 17, Paul writes... For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us. So, so notice we are passive in this. Something is acting upon us. It is preparing us for an eternal glory beyond all comparison. So God is working upon us in such a way that He's preparing us for something that we cannot imagine. Something that is so glorious it exceeds anything that we have experienced in this life. We can't think of anything to compare it to that would match its grandeur or majesty. It's incomparable. And he is preparing us for this glory in part through affliction and through suffering. Now we do have a responsibility in this great work. You see it there in verse 18. He says, As we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we should make this note, given what Paul says here. Affliction and hardship do not necessarily result in greater glory or greater rewards. So a difficult ministry assignment. A hard marriage, failing health, does not necessarily result in more reward or more glory. Rather, it's as we fix our eyes on Christ and His resurrection power, having faith in Him, that then He uses the affliction that we experience in this life to renew us, to change us, to transform us, to prepare us for the beauty and the wonder and the glory that He has in store for us. And you know, as you think about this, it reminds us really of the tragedy of unbelief. And it is an absolute tragedy. If you read or listen to famous atheists and naturalists like Bertrand Russell or Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, they'll tell you that we are, we are all nothing but highly evolved animals. And when we die, there will be nothing. We fall into an abyss of nothingness, our bodies rot, our personhood ceases to exist. Now, I was talking to a young atheist not too long ago, and we talked for, I guess, about an hour or more, 
And he was proposing this worldview that we're just highly evolved animals and so forth. And so we were discussing this and going back and forth. And at one point I said to him, you know, I believe that you are far more than just a collection of atoms and molecules, but rather you are created in the image of God and therefore have eternal value and worth. I'll have to say, after that conversation, there were no major concessions on his part. He for sure was not ready to become a Christian at that moment. But for a moment, I felt like I got through just a bit. As I said that to him, I sensed that there was almost like a visceral response within them that cried out, yes, I am more than just atoms and molecules. Matter cannot fully account for my experience as a human being. And this is what makes the Christian worldview so distinct from the naturalist or secularist worldview. You know, C.S. Lewis made this point in his great work, famous work, The Weight of Glory. He writes, quote, listen to this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, end of quote. God is creating us. He is transforming us. He is making us into a glory, into a beauty that we cannot even imagine. And how does that relate to mission? Well, what Paul is, Paul is making this point is it relates to his mission, as he's thinking about this reality, this new nature that God has given him, this new thing that God is making him into. Paul makes this point that when we are looking at Christ and when we are experiencing his resurrection power in our lives, we can be confident that there is no ministry experience, there is no shed tears, there is no disappointment, there is no broken heart, There is no physical ailment. There's no disillusionment. There's no failure that we will experience in this life that will be wasted. But God will use each one to fashion us for His glory. Into a glory that in this life we can't come up with anything to compare it to. And will make us forget the trials of this life forever. And so Paul says... Given this, we do not lose heart. We do not. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus not only ensures Paul a new nature, but it also ensures him a new body. You see this in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Look there and we read, For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, before we talk here about what Paul has to say regarding the body. Let me just ask you, you, what do you think about your body? Have Have you ever given time to think about your body? Like, do you value your body? Do you care about your body? How does the way you think about your body affect the way you do mission? 
Well, let's see what Paul says here about his body and the way it affects mission. When speaking of his body, Paul uses the analogy of a tent. You see it there in verse 1. And this is appropriate because we know that Paul was a tent maker. Actually, from the book of Acts, we know that when Paul was in this city, in the city of Corinth, he made tents, and that was one of the ways that he supported his ministry as a missionary. But even more than having his personal profession in mind, Paul here is recalling the Old Testament tabernacle. In the Old Testament, God ordained that His people would come and worship Him at the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was essentially a tent. And it was the place where God had promised to especially dwell with His people. It's where they came to offer their sacrifices. It's where they came to worship God. And so Paul likens our current body to the Old Testament tabernacle, to a tent. But then he says, if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed... So we see here that Paul has a sober he has a sober assessment of death, right? If our current tent, our current body is destroyed. So in chapter 4, verse 16, he acknowledges that our outer nature is wasting away. But now in chapter 5, verse 1, he also recognizes that that wasting away will ultimately result in, at death, the destruction of our body. Having said that, though, He is not cynical regarding death. He's sober, but he's not demoralized or despairing. He goes on to say, If the tent which is our earthly home is destroyed, here it is, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now what Paul is recalling here is that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament tabernacle or tent was replaced with the temple. And the temple was a strong, solid structure. It was glorious and it was beautiful. And this is where God's people now were called to come and to meet and to worship. And Paul says that the new body that we will receive at death, the resurrected body we will receive, will be, it is analogous to that temple. It will be strong and it will be beautiful and it will be glorious. Our temporary tent, this body, will be replaced with a permanent an eternal and glorious home. A body that's free from sickness, a body that's free from disease, a body that's free from depression, a body that's free from injury, a body that's free from death. Now, I don't, I don't want to get too speculative here or too weird regarding this new body that awaits us. But let me just say, as we think about this resurrection body that God has in store for us, the possibilities are endless, all right? We don't know exactly what it'll be like. But we do know that when Jesus was raised from the dead and he received a resurrection body, we know that he was able to eat fish like he could in his old body. But we also know that he could appear in a room without walking through a door. The possibilities are endless. And it will be glorious. One of the points that Paul is making here is that God's redemption of His people is a full and a complete redemption. In other words, when Christ came to die on the cross and when He was raised to conquer death, Christ didn't just come to redeem our souls, but He also came to redeem our bodies. He came to redeem every part of us. It is a total and complete and full redemption. And you know, this is, and we should make this distinction, this is a distinction between the Christian worldview and so many other worldviews. 
You know, many people devalue the body in various ways. You think about the naturalist or the secularist, as we were talking about before. They believe that the body is nothing more than uh, matter that was formed by purposeless happenstance. And so when we die, the body is destroyed. The earth absorbs it. Good riddance to the body. But also people who are particularly spiritual devalue the body. You know, during after Christ's uh, resurrection in the early centuries, after his resurrection, there was a popular philosophy known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught this idea that our souls are good, but our bodies are inherently evil. Now, we see this actually appear in a lot of Eastern religions and New Age thought, this idea that the soul is good, that the body really needs to be escaped. We need to do away with our bodies. But Christianity says no. Christianity says that God created the world, that He is the creator of all things, that He created the physical universe, including our bodies. And that when sin entered the world, all of creation was corrupted, even the physical creation. Our bodies were corrupted as well. Our bodies are under a curse, and that's why we experience sickness and disease and death. But when Christ came, He came to give a full and complete redemption of the entire creation, including our bodies. And so when all is said and done, and when we die, we will experience the same resurrection life that Christ did. We will be raised, and we will be given a new body. Now, how do you think this theology, this idea of the body, affected the way that Paul did mission? Well, it's interesting because when Paul says in chapter 4, verse 16, that his outer nature is wasting away, And when Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1, that at death there will be the destruction of his body, Paul especially, think about the context in which Paul is writing, Paul especially has in mind the hardships and the afflictions that he's experiencing in his body as a result of being on mission for Christ. And as a result of being on mission, Paul could say with absolute authenticity and genuineness, my body is wasting away. And the destruction and death of my body is always an imminent possibility. You know, if you were here last Sunday, I read this passage. I'm just going to read it again. It's just a few verses, but later on, or actually earlier, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 and following, the Apostle Paul speaks with more specificity to the sufferings he endured for being an apostle and being on mission for Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24, he writes, and think about Paul's body, okay? He says, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's whippings, each time bringing him almost to the point of death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. Now listen to all the danger that the Apostle Paul experienced on mission. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Just pause for a moment and say, Mission is not always safe, right? Mission oftentimes will lead us into danger. 
He goes on and writes, In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And you know, this is so helpful to us because particularly in our society, we are tempted to worship our bodies, right? Our society is obsessed with physical appearance. And so we obsess with dieting and working out and waxing, right? I mean, the whole gamut, right? And we're obsessed with, with escaping death, right? So we take the best vitamins we can find and we talk about health care prevention all the time and, and, and we, we do all these things. And let me just say, in proportion... None of those things are wrong. They can be good. Paul actually teaches us in these letters to the Corinthians that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we should care for our bodies and we should uh, should take care of our bodies. But Paul also teaches us in Corinthians that our bodies are not ultimate, nor are they to be worshipped. Rather, our bodies are to be used in service to Christ and for His mission. In fact, in another passage, Paul talks about our bodies being offered up as a living sacrifice to Christ for His glory. And what we see here in our text is that Paul is willing, given what he believes about the resurrection, given the hope that he has in the future, he is willing to fling his body into mission. And why? Because he is confident, he is confident that this present body that he possesses is only a shadow of the reality of the glorious resurrected body he will one day receive. And so he says, beat me. It's okay. I'm getting a new body. Stone me. I'm getting a new body. I may die on mission. I'm getting a new body. And it's glorious. In the 19th century, John Patton and his wife felt led to go to the New Hebrides Islands. And they were islands that were inhabited by cannibals. And they were from London. And just 15 years prior... To them making the decision to go, some missionaries had traveled to the New Hebrides Islands, but the second they reached shore, the cannibals killed them and ate them. And as they were considering the possibility of going to the New Hebrides, they were receiving counsel and advice from others. And there was an elder back home in London, an elder in the community, a respected elder in the church, who protested them going. And he protested them going by saying, The cannibals, you will be eaten by the cannibals. And John Patton responded, Quote, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, That if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. End of quote. 
What you believe about your body affects the way you think about mission. And Paul says, because I have this unshakable hope, this unshakable confidence that I will receive a new, glorious, resurrected body, I fling my body into mission for the sake of Christ. So the resurrection ensures Paul a new nature. It ensures him a new body. Third, it ensures him a forever home. Look there in verses 5 through 10. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, if you want to know, in in verses 6 to 8, we get to the crux of the matter, okay? So if you want to know the red-hot center of Paul's joyful, unshakable, unbreakable confidence and hope, it's found in verses 6 through 8. Look there again. In particular, verse 8, he says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, what is it? Because there's layers to it, right? This hope that he has, there's layers to it. He's looking for a new nature. He's looking for a new body. He's, he's hoping. He has confidence in these things, that these things are to come. But if you were to ask him, what is at the red-hot center of your hope? What is it that you are really, really looking to? It is this. It is to be at home with the Lord. This is why Paul is of good courage. This is it. This is the grand prize. This is the ultimate and final reward. It is God. It's better than the prospect of all the other blessings that come as a result of the resurrection of Jesus. It's better than the prospect of a new nature. It's better than the prospect of a new, resurrected, glorious body. There is no destination beyond this destination. This, when we get to this point in the presence of God, we are home. There's nowhere better to go. There's nowhere more thrilling, nowhere more interesting, nowhere more satisfying, nowhere more glorious. He is not a means to anything else. He is the end. John Piper makes this point so well in his book entitled God is the Gospel. Listen to what he says. Quote, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there, will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It is a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not 
there. And Paul would say, no. Heaven is God, right? That's it. And notice how deeply personal this is to Paul. He says, we would rather be at home with the Lord. You know the difference between a house and a home, right? A house is a place that provides shelter, that protects you from outside elements. But a home, a house is made a home depending on who lives there, right? Who's present in the house. That's what makes a home. And heaven is home because God is there. God is there. And this is what Paul longs for more than anything else, to be at home with the Lord. This is glorious. You know, the secularist or the naturalist tells us that after death, all that awaits us is an abyss, right? Emptiness, nothingness. And why do they believe that? Because they believe that ultimate reality is matter. Ultimate reality is just molecules and atoms. But in contrast, Paul says, no, ultimate reality is not matter. Ultimate reality is not stuff. Ultimate reality is a person, an infinite, glorious, beautiful, breathtaking, loving, fierce, all-powerful, all-knowing, gracious God. And because that's ultimate reality, because that is our hope, that is the end of all our hope, to be in his presence forever, Paul says, we do not lose hope. If you're going to be on mission for Christ, and I'm speaking to myself right now too, you got to have a gospel hope that goes deep to sustain you to persevere, to make you like steel in the midst of hardships and difficulties. And Paul says, I have that hope, and it is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A new nature, a new body, a forever home. I'm okay. I'm good. Let's go. I wonder, are you ready to meet this God? You can be. But to be ready, you need two things. And this is where we're going to conclude. And I want to point these two things out to you. You need confidence and you need expectancy. Look there in verses 2 through 4. And the Apostle Paul writes, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly being, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Verse 4, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. Now, there is some debate on what Paul is referring to here when he refers to being naked, found naked before God. But it seems what Paul is doing here is he's using a common idiom in Scripture to refer to the shame of sin. If you know the biblical story in the garden, Adam and Eve, the first two humans that God created, sinned against God. And it was in their sin that they first became aware of their nakedness. And they hid. It was the first time that shame had entered into the world. Because of their sin, they experienced shame before God. They experienced shame between one another. But here's the good news. 
in the gospel. I said earlier, right, that the gospel brings full and complete redemption. In the gospel, Jesus came to cover our shame. In the gospel, Christ promises us to wash us with the cleansing power of His blood, of the blood of His atoning sacrifice, and to clothe us with His perfect righteousness so that when we stand before God, we will never stand before God again naked in the shame of our sin, but we will stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we will be forever accepted based on that righteousness. Paul says, I have that confidence, and you can have that confidence. That's the good news of the gospel. If you confess your sins and you trust in Christ as Savior, He will wash you with the blood of His sacrifice and clothe you with His righteousness so that you can be confident to stand before God on the day of judgment. Not only do you need confidence, though, you need expectancy. We see this in verses 9 through 10. There we read, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 9, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so Paul has this confidence that when he stands before God, he will be forgiven, he'll be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, he'll be received, he'll be welcomed. But grace does not make Paul indifferent to the final judgment. Rather, what we see is that grace makes Paul eager. Grace makes Paul expectant to please the one who has extended this grace to him. And so he wants to give himself. He wants to give his entire life to pleasing This one who by his grace has given them the hope of a new nature and a new body and a forever home. Are you ready to meet this God with confidence? And are you living with expectancy for that day when you will meet him? If not, I encourage you, even now in this moment, turn to Christ, call out to him, Ask Him to save you. Give Him your life, and He will save you. This hope, this glorious hope we've been talking about this morning, all of it can be yours through faith in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank You for this passage, and Lord, we thank You for how it is so full of gospel hope. And Lord, I pray now that as we are going to be singing and closing out this service and then moving on with another week, Lord, I pray that the the glorious hope and comfort that is in the gospel and in this passage, Lord, I pray that it would not just wash over us and then we would just go back to our lives full of the same anxieties and fears. But Lord, I pray that we would be filled with this hope. I pray that we would pray this hope deep down into our hearts. And Father, I pray that it would transform us as a church, that we would be empowered in fresh ways for mission for your glory. Lord, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you by his life we are being made new, that we have the hope of a new, resurrected, glorious body at death, and that we have the hope of a forever home. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.